episode of Similar Cinema Wheeler today. It's Sean along with Scott and Tony once again. And we're joined with a, another very special guest this week. It's uh, Tony's nephew, among other things, but we're going to go with Tony's nephew for now, Justin Siemens. Thanks, Justin, for coming on to the no podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Uh, and today we're talking about... Uh, a classic movie and a kind of a revolutionary movie mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, a cult, cult classic, for sure. Definitely a cult classic, and probably one of the most influential movies to be released in the last twenty years or so, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this movie was kind of like a juggernaut, I think, when it was released in the mid '90s. I think it had the same effect on film that Nirvana's Nevermind had on music earlier in the decade which is taking a lot of fringe elements mm-hmm. that were kind of countercultural, not necessarily within the mainstream. And then once it was put out there, everyone kind of gravitated yeah. towards it. It kind of exposed a lot of people who normally wouldn't see this stuff. And, and then similarly, uh, also a lot of crappy knockoffs. <laughs> yes, I was going to get to that too. Afterwards, yeah. Everybody wanted to make a Pulp Fiction movie, like everybody wanted to make a Nirvana album. And with predominantly bad results I would say yeah that's the downside of stuff like that like you have the the high end product and mm-hmm. then you have the stuff that's like lower end and that was something that I think frustrated me a lot during the 90s when Pulp Fiction was released is that it was like a bomb that went off in mainstream cinema and then it started people started saying hey this worked here yeah. so I'll bring it over into this movie like you had a lot of these smaller, let's say shittier, independent films that came in the <laughs> yeah. wake of Pulp Fiction. And that was my, and I, this is a great segue in, into this, It's that was my initial impression in my reservation to Pulp Fiction when it was first released. Um, to give you some backdrop into that, it was released in 94, and that same year Forrest Gump was released. Oh, okay. And I was blown away by Forrest Gump when I first saw it. I absolutely loved it, and everyone did. Yeah. And then Pulp Fiction came on later. Which was edgier. It was an edgier, it was a a sharper film. And I kind of resented that because like, well, you know what, Forrest Gump is not, (laughs) is nothing to shake hands at at the time, you know. That's for another podcast in general, but there was like a competition that was set up in the media between Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction. And it did kind of feel like, yeah, yeah, it (laughs) was. Well, actually, Shawshank Redemption came out that year. Oh, man. That that movie got snubbed entirely, which was a great movie. It was a great movie. It was. It just, other movies came out that year that were better. Yeah, Yeah, that movie was so... It was was such a significant year because you have Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, and Shawshank all competing for Best Picture. And at the time, Shawshank was barely seen until it was released on video, so it was kind of obscure. And then it became really popular after it came out on video. It's right. like Pulp happens. Fiction. People, yeah. people will say Pulp Fiction is their favorite movie and people will say Shawshank Redemption is yep. their favorite. Oddly enough, I don't hear people say Forrest Gump is their favorite movie. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I love agree. Forrest Gump. I do too. Yeah. I yeah. think the thing that, that makes, um, just bringing it back to Pulp Fiction, yeah. the thing that makes Pulp Fiction just so memorable and even in 1994 when it re- was released, it was very fresh. Mm-hmm. The concepts, the themes, even the way that it, the story was told. You had all these characters intertwined that were all somehow connected, very much kind of like Twin Peaks, which I think is what makes it fun for the audience is to see, okay, how do these two know each other? Or how did, you know, oh, that's why that happened or whatever. It's just, it's really fun. It's like kind of like you're, a det- you're playing detective along with them, mm-hmm. you know, and definitely for the characters of Jules and Vincent, mm-hmm. you certainly feel 
like you are with them, like you're one of them, you know, like you're in that world mm -hmm. that they live in, mm -hmm. which is very kind of, it just was very, um, mm -hmm. yeah, captivating. It just kind of pulls you in. Yeah, and, and actually that kind of, my first initial impression of the movie was, actually my first exposure to it was, I think on Inside Edition or one of those, Entertainment Tonight, I saw John Travolta, they're saying, John Travolta's in this new movie, and you know how they would do that stuff, yeah. behind the scenes stuff, and uh, I was watching it, and I saw him with the long hair, and... Which was so graphic. I know, bad it was like... Oh, bad yeah. It was rough, So bad. I've seen number one... The trailer park status Seriously. right there. Yeah. I mean, even a suit did not make him look better. <laughs> no, it, it, it looked kind of crazy, but... At that point, my impression of John Travolta is like he had just made Look Who's Talking and Mook Who's Talking too. So that wasn't really. Wait, did, did Con Air was that John Travolta? That was that was Nicholas Nick Cage. Okay, okay, uh, I'm thinking of. Which they became inseparable. Actually, okay. they made the movie Face Off. That's what I was <laughs> thinking did. of. Not literally, they literally yes, became yes. inseparable. Okay, was that before or after Pulp Fiction? That was <laughs> much after. Okay, that was the research. The reason we had a Face Off okay. is because of Pulp Fiction. Okay. Because yeah. after that point, Travolta's career was dead. Like he was yeah, considered like really a has been. A celebrity, 70s. Yeah, yeah, he was very synonymous with Saturday Night Fever, Greece. Yes, his Greece, yeah. And he was getting roles occasionally, like Look Who's Talking, which was a thankless role, really, where he's just playing off of Christie Alley. That's a different thing, but that was my impression of John Travolta. And I watched the clip of that movie, Pulp Fiction, and it looked like one of those movies you'd see late which at clip night. Was it? It, it was just him and Jules probably oh, in, car, like in Sam yeah. Jackson. They were like, you know, the, the famous scenes with the shooting each other. Yeah. And my impression of it was like, man. Travolta's really slumming it. His career has really gone downhill <laughs> because this looks like something that's going to be straight to video or a late at night on cinema, Cinemax or, or HBO. And I wasn't wrong in a way because I think that's what Tarantino's celebrating in that movie are these B-grade yeah. films. Like he, he, But what he did is he synthesized elements you would see in movies that you would watch, like mm -hmm. whether it's martial arts or... You know, crime films, anything that's kind of sordid or seedy, it's kind of yeah. considered kind of the undercurrent of trash culture, basically. But mm -hmm. he took a lot of those elements and synthesized them with A-list talent. Yeah, I was just going to say, that the casting in this movie was absolutely on par. Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have done a better job casting. No. Especially the roles of John Travolta, you know, Vincent Vega and Jules, well, as with John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, those, those two... Well, really Bruce make the movie. Willis. Bruce Willis and his Bruce part Willis as well, is good too. Really well picked. And well, even uh, Uma Thurman. Yeah. You know, is great. What's funny about the the casting, if you read like on Wikipedia about who the the uh, the studio wanted, I mean, they didn't want any a lot of these guys. Uh, Why didn't they? Actually, Samuel Jackson's audition was terrible because he thought it was just a reading, so he didn't give any emphasis on it. And oh, they're going to wow. give it to the guy that ultimately played the bartender. And uh, Marcellus Wallace's bartender. Yes. Oh, uh, okay. So he, they, they actually encouraged him to, to audition again, and he obviously got the part. Um, but they, there was like Johnny Depp was obviously huge at the time. And was he his, thinking of being Vincent Vega? Well, they wanted the, uh, they they wanted Johnny Depp for, um, I can't even remember. I'll have to look it up. But um, they wanted people like Johnny Depp. They wanted these big names. They wanted uh, Christian Slater. You wow, know. who, who, uh, he, I mean, Johnny Depp is still I managed wanted, to stay afloat, but Christian Slater is like faded away, I mean, honey. Well, let's be honest here, Johnny Depp, half of him staying afloat has been fangirls, and, uh, Well, know, the Tina Pirates Q. of the Caribbean movie, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that's kept him in there. Yeah, but th there was a lot of, like, yeah. Quentin Tarantino had specific, you know, uh, a vision that was unique, you know. 
And he became later on. I think he became a director that would resuscitate actors' careers. That's he would take all these '70s yeah. stars, and then he would put them in movies. Now and then, you know, people like uh, David Carradine and um, who was in a uh, Foxy Brown movie. No, you're thinking of Carradine was in uh, Kill Bill. He was in Kill Bill, but there yeah. was a. Uh, you're thinking of Robert Forster and Pam Greer. Pam Greer, yes. Not Pam. Is it Pam Greer? Yeah, it was Pam Greer. Okay, Pam Greer. He also um, reuses the same actors and actresses, like many directors tend to do. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of has his favorites, and it seems like he works with them. And he does. Uh, a lot of his and, and specifically, he did one Travolta. F- well, he originally wanted Travolta from from Dusk Till Dawn. But Travolta wasn't crazy about vampire movies. Yeah. And so he said, this other movie, this Pulp Fiction movie you're writing, is more my thing. And he goes, really? And then he started seeing him as Vincent Vega. I think he had another mm-hmm. actor in mind. I think it was Michael Madsen, who was in Reservoir Dogs, was the guy he originally had for Vincent Vega. But uh, Travolta, he, when he started thinking about Travolta, he loved Travolta. He wanted to revive Travolta's career because... Yeah. In the 70s, he loved him in Saturday Night Fever and Grease in a movie that Brian De Palma directed called Blow Up. And uh, people like Daniel Day-Lewis were taking an active interest oh, yeah, in Vincent Vegas, but he wanted Travolta because yeah. that's the guy he wanted to revive. He loved him. and Yeah, they said Harvey Weinstein wanted Daniel Day-Lewis, which I never questioned if Daniel Day-Lewis could play a character. No, <laughs> it's hard to not. believe anybody playing the character the way that uh, John Travolta ultimately played him. Um, and I also really like the um, contrast, and this is why I think the the couple of Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield work so well, at least for me, is the contrast of the char- of the characters and their personalities. Mm-hmm. Samuel Jackson is very loud and outspoken, and he's this boisterous one. And then you have John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega, who's very laid back, and hey, I'm going with the flow. Yeah, I very, don't care about this. Very you know, cautious. Like, we've got yeah, exactly. He's mm-hmm. just. He's, you know, nonchalant. He's there. And, you you know, Jules is the more hyperactive one. Mm-hmm. And I think that really works. It also creates a lot of the comedy and conflict between the two of them and the banter that they have, which is iconic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could literally just watch a two-hour movie of them two driving in a car talking. <laughs> yeah. I really could. <laughs> I think more quotes are famous from that movie than anything else of just those two talking. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think the... the Example? No. <laughs> that was a That's very tasty burger. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The dialogue is a big key to this mm-hmm. movie for a lot of people. Like, people say it's one of the best written films of all mm-hmm. time, you know, and one of the most influential because yeah. it's... The dialogue is very flavorful. Um, it's even very fast. Right. I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie, but do you really feel like you're sitting there for two and a half hours? I don't. Not at all. No, although some, some parts, some <laughs> yeah. parts, but but for the for the yeah. whole, you know, as mm-hmm. a whole. Yeah, I think it, it it does flow very well, and it's a movie I think it improves for me over repeated viewings. Mm-hmm. Like I think when I first saw it, I always liked the movie. I never disliked it, but I also felt like it got overhyped a bit because there was a lot of buzz around Pulp Fiction when yeah. it was released, and I think it's kind of remained that way over the twenty years. Like I haven't heard people. It, it seems. It's definitely became a classic. It's a classic, I, you know, for a lot of people. Yeah. And, well, I think that the, the buzz and the continuous buzz about it is it was so different. It really was, especially at that time. They just weren't making movies like that. And it was kind of like a fresh, like, hip, almost, different, like, just a different perspective. Yeah, of storytelling. And I think people really latched on to that. It was very with the times, mm-hmm. you know, like, with the drugs and, you know, mm-hmm. it's not really a whole lot of sex in that movie, but just some of those darker, trashier elements, it kind of brought those to light. And uh, I think people really latched on to that because 
prior to that, especially I remember being, you know, young in the 90s, and I feel like I was also a kid, so my dad monitored what I watched and what I didn't watch. I actually didn't see Pulp Fiction until I was an adult. But it just seems like the 90s with films like Homeward Bound and Forrest Gump, and it was almost kind of like marshmallowy. You know, hey. it's fluffy. Like I'm not, I'm not downplaying any of those movies. I like both of those films. You could trash but, Homeward Bound, but Horace <laughs> Gump, that's a, that's <laughs> no, a, that's a soft spot. I'm not trashing it. I'm just saying right, these yeah. very positive, like, um, they don't really have, I mean, the darkest thing about Forrest Gump was that Jenny was a little promiscuous. Uh, a little? Well, okay, <laughs> we well. go for a lot of promiscuous. And then she half the cast Naked on the stage yeah. with a guitar. You know. Vietnam, but, but you know. But I half guess, the cast does die in that true. movie. That's true. I don't know. There's just, but there were just parts of it that just seemed, it, it just seemed like a, kind of like a feel-good, like touched your heart mm-hmm. type of movie. And Pulp really Fiction crap. really was like, it was more like watching reality TV kind mm-hmm. of. Well, a, a deeper thing that you're getting at, too, is the 90s, we're kind of flavorless until movies like the independent films started breaking mm-hmm. out like Pulp Fiction. Um, not in every case. Like, you could yeah. break down individual by individual basis. But the 80s, I think, was the peak of commercial mainstream blockbuster entertainment. Movies like Back to the Future and E.T. And those are all classic mm-hmm. films, great films. There was always an undercurrent like David Lynch doing Blue Velvet and stuff. There was always an undercurrent of indie mm-hmm. cinema lurking yeah. under the surface. But it wasn't until like the mid '90s when that exploded. Now there's good and bad with fads like that, like because they become fads. You know, the difference between the imitators and Quentin Tarantino is that Quentin Tarantino, there's an authenticity to him. These are the kind of movies he wanted to make. He'd be making them whether they were popular or not. I think these, Mm -hmm. he's taking things that he loved. There were even critics that were saying, "I'd like to see Tarantino do something serious now that he's done Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs. Let's see him attempt something like." Much more serious, more substantial. But that's and not his, his flavor. No. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not, what yeah, he that's not why he's in yeah. it. Right, and I think that's a mistake and, to say. And that's say. not his style. Yeah, every director has a style. Yeah, right. you can't judge a director compared to another because really each one is going to have their own separate taste. And depending on what even your own personality is, you're yeah. going to favor one more than the other. Exactly. And I think artists are a better judge of what they should be doing sometimes than the critics anyway. Like the critics really should just not how critics should react because that's how they honestly felt but you know critics I think work best when they're in reaction to something versus trying to spearhead what people should be doing it's one thing if you don't like a movie that's fine but I think it's weird when they start saying he should be doing this instead of this we love this but wouldn't it be great to see him do something really substantial like well no he wouldn't be Quentin Tarantino and I don't know if Quentin Tarantino is capable of making a movie like that it just doesn't seem like his personality yeah Mm -hmm. Well, with the dialogue and, and the, the slow of, burn. And the types of characters that he creates. Well, I think the, the, the first impression I ever had of this movie is my parents went to see it, and they came back, and the way my mom would describe it was she was fascinated by the fact that they would just talk casually before mm-hmm. they were going to go shoot someone. Yeah. Like, they have these real casual conversations. And the first, you know, the first real scene once you get into the movie is with Jules and Vincent Vega going into... Flock of Seagulls house. Flock of Seagulls house (laughs) to to do a hit, you know, because these people couldn't pay or whatever. You never or had a briefcase. I wasn't really sure what was going on there. I, I, I think I they, feel stole like they stole the money. They stole the money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stole I believe that's what the whole uh, does he look like a bitch? Yeah, that's what that was all about. Okay, so they were trying to steal the. Apparently, that was such a big thing with me. I just wondered how those guys got involved with Marcellus Wallace in the first place because <laughs> they look like a bunch of preppy college students in yeah. this room. And that's what I love about the movie. Must at the wrong party at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, he's going to get involved with whoever he's going to get. I mean, there's probably lower level 
you know, this, you know, I think this is, there's many people involved with Marcellus Wallace, mm -hmm. and he's just, he seems to be some sort of kingpin. Some, obviously, he's an important person. He's got a lot yeah. of money, so he's going to be involved with a lot of lower-level people, people just doing yeah. it for shits and giggles or whatever. But, uh, yeah, clearly, they weren't to be trusted, and I think he, if he had a vetting process, he probably wanted to vet them. Marcellus Wallace is really the central figure of this universe that Tarantino created, too, because almost everything filters exactly. around Marcellus Wallace. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the... And, and, you the and, see him. and how, all the yeah. characters, how all the characters are involved with him. Yeah. Which is very similar to Twin Peaks with Laura Palmer. It's very central yeah. around her death and how all these people are involved with her. Which I personally love that kind of like storytelling. It just even in writing, yeah, even in writing, it's so favorite. it's so entrancing, and you get a, you get addicted to these characters. I feel like it makes situations. you read on more as well. Like you know, you, yeah. it's very easy to become bored with a book, but it's very hard to become bored with a book when you're when you know the next page that you might turn very well could be the page that uh, you see how everything kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are layers of mystery in the movie, though, that are never completely solved. He doesn't always explain everything. Like because, what's in the briefcase? We right. Never learn. What's in the briefcase? What's going on with the gimp? I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of things well, that they don't explain. That's a very good question. Okay. Yeah. 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 What's the point of the gimp? Yeah. The gimp is obvious. I think he was like their sex slave. Well, well that we well, know. Yes, that's, yeah. very, I mean, that's, that's very obvious. That's very that's clear. But yeah. well, where did he come from and who, who is knows? he? But what, he has no purpose in that. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wake the gimp up. And for He's one, sleeping. how does he fit in that crate? Yeah. <laughs> Why asking, He's living in a crate. Why we're asking about it this. It could have yeah. just been... You also have to remember the times, too. This was 1994. So, you got to remember the so, times we had sex slaves in our In the bottom of a pawn shop. <laughs> yeah, we can't, But what we I mean is seeing something like that in a film was kind of like, oh, wow, like that was taboo. You didn't talk about that kind of thing. And, and, and that's what I think one of, is another element that made this film so great. And at, at that time in the 90s, in the mid-90s, that's when things really started turning. Even entertainment TV started getting more sexier. Shows like Friends, Sex in the City would talk about sex, and you started seeing sex on TV. And well, it, I don't think the was, gimp was sexy. Yeah. No, no, I don't. But I think it, they I used think them the reason, some sort of butt rape thing. The reason that they had it there, and the reason they had him in the cage, I think, was just more or less. Mm -hmm. To yeah. demonstrate yeah, the, the, the character of these kind of guys, like that, this is what these guys did. Well, that's and, why it, you know. I think the whole movie, the reason why it's so significant to me, is for like what you're saying. You know, my parents were very picky on what I watched and what I didn't watch. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard about the movie, I was in fifth grade, and I got slammed into doing a play for the movie actually without ever even seeing it. And uh, I had the role of Vincent Vega, oh. and uh, so I went home, of course, after doing this play. After you know about like two weeks of being into studying my lines and whatnot, about a week before we actually performed, I decided why not go home and, and actually see what this movie is all about. So I uh, got on the internet, went on Port Locker, you know, went about and watched the movie, and uh, it kind of spoke to me because I was so used to seeing you know these classic, as you said earlier about like Forrest Gump, you know, good feeling movies, and then there was Pulp Fiction, which mm -hmm. was so much of the opposite. Yeah. I mean, it was my first honest movie that I could, I could any way call a tragedy compared to most of the other movies that I had ended up watching. Mm -hmm. And that's where that movie really stuck with me, was, you know, the whole fact that it was so yeah. counterculture, it was seeing a different side of, you know, life in general. But overall, the dialogue really was what Absolutely. set me in. Like, reading my lines for the play was what I was like, what is this movie even about? Because I was mm -hmm. doing the scene, you know, in the car... Where he, uh, shot where he shoot Marvin, Mar Marvin yeah. in the face, and he's like, I shot "Oh Marvin. man, I shot Marvin in the face!" And at at that point, I'm just like, "I have to. I'm I'm too curious not to go home and watch it." Yeah. And uh, it definitely does bring out that side of you know, like you said, it exposes a lot of things that up until that point, some of us kind of uh, 
you might know, not have ever seen before. Movies, like their rape and there's a Yeah, movie. well, being in there fifth grade drugs, and you know the heroin <laughs> seeing overdose, people OD on heroin, dr- drug, just drug trafficking in general, <laughs> yeah. murders. The like camp. these are th- yeah, the game. <laughs> the like, these are things that like you didn't typically see outright in such an honest way in movies until I feel like Pulp Fiction came out, and then it was out there, and then everybody was trying to copy it. Well, that it actually happened a lot in the seventies. Like if you watch movies like Taxi Driver, like the early Scorsese films, like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Now they probably aren't as lurid. As Pulp Fiction, like, like I said, fellas, right? Yeah, the drugs and yeah. a lot of rated R movies. If you even watch movies like Lethal Weapon and stuff like the action movies, you always see the remnants Star of that stuff. You know, yeah, out there. there was a lot of that out there. I guess that's true. Yeah, but with Pulp Fiction, I think he went for shock value in certain scenes. Like I know he described the Gimp sequence mm-hmm. as some boxing movie from like the 1940s, Cross with Deliverance. Like it's like he would take one film and then combine it with another. Like motif that you wouldn't normally see together, and would throw the audience off guard. And I, I think that's it. I think Pulp Fiction took elements of the underground, the counterculture. Like you said that stuff had been around for a long time, yeah. and disparate like uh, resources. It was and, just the way it was presented too, in such a casual, raw, yeah. natural way. You know, like casually talking. Okay, now we got to go shoot this guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you know, just that lifestyle you know, in general. Movies, yeah, I just feel like a lot of movies, especially when they're going to kill people, it's very overdramatic or yeah, it's built up. The exactly, music is it's built up. The music's gone, but Pulp Fiction was like, "Hey, we're cool. We're yeah. just going to kill people." I'm you just going to eat your burger yeah. and then yeah, slaughter like, you. You know, no problem. Everything is lived in. This is their life. This is what exactly. they do every day. This yeah. is almost like a day in the life of these guys it, versus it's like a documentary. Like, right. The yeah, shocking things are one-time moment thing. Yeah, you're seeing just a lifestyle. It is. It's a lifestyle yeah. movie, essentially. Except the the real conflict is when things happen unexpectedly, like when you shoot a guy accidentally in the back of the car yeah. in the head, yeah. or you know. But even you, then, they had a guy for that. You know, that's how much of a lifestyle was. You just call like my phone favorite call. Char- Harvey Keitel is my favorite character in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I like all the characters, but I just like this is the first time I ever seen uh, a, a cleanser or a, uh, some guy. You know, they've done certain characters. In other movies and TV shows, but this is the first guy that came in and was like the fixer, like yeah. the guy that comes in and fixes all your problems. Oh man, you shot somebody in the head in the back of your car. <laughs> Don't worry, I have a solution to that. Yeah. What, what's the part you like? The line that he says. Oh, my, the best. My favorite line is like, "That's thirty minutes away. I'll be there in 10. <laughs> I, I think about the wolf too. Yeah. For me, wolf, is, yeah. Harvey Keitel, I think, is amazing in the role, mm-hmm. but. Uh, he's the one guy I think that everyone like. You forget he's a criminal. Because of the way he's dressed yeah. and because yeah. he's very polite, even though he's he's curt, like as he says himself, he's yeah. so efficient. You're like, man, I wish this guy was my CEO, you know, because I yeah. think he's just so efficient, mm-hmm. like on a supernatural level. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it, there's something compelling about watching a guy fix things no matter what the situation, even mm-hmm. though. Yeah. And keep your cool. It's almost like watching like Cary Grant. That's kind of, he yeah. reminded me a lot of Cary Grant and he was yeah. very regal uh, and. Composed, and even though you know he was a crook, yeah. like there are times you're cleaning a dead body out of a exactly. car, exactly. But you still liked him, and it. you're like, oh, he's nice. And Thank even, you for the coffee. I'll get you some more towels. Like yeah. you know, it's yeah, yeah. I'll buy you a new bedroom. The, the politeness <laughs> behind that. Well, even when Jimmy calls him out on being curt or being short, yeah. And the way he describes it is like, I'm sorry for being short, but we have we don't have time. You know, yeah. your wife's gonna be home, and I want to make sure the Bonnie we're... situation, yeah. and uh, you know, it's also, I mean. Tarantino can't help but put himself in these movies. He <laughs> also, he, that character cracked me up so much because Quentin Tarantino, God love him as a director, and I do, he just was really, at that point in his life, a very weak actor. But at the same time, it worked. Like, yeah. 
It was funny. I don't. He just was so awful. Like his acting. Was it's better than like Reservoir Dogs, where he's clearly trying to live out some cool fantasy. Yeah. But, but he kind of worked as playing yeah. that kind of homely yeah, yeah. husband. You know, just I, an I everyday love, man. I do love the line at the very beginning, though. You know, the whole uh, when they, when they go to his house. Yes. Is there the a sign dude? on the front of my house? Um, Did you see the sign? Yeah. What sign? The sign that said "Dead Nigger Storage." Because there is no sign that says. I always like the part when Samuel Jackson is sucking up to him. Mm. This is some good coffee. coffie. This is better than McDonald's. He's like, dude, you don't have to tell me how good my coffee is. Yeah. Okay, I know how I good, know my how good it is. Like, I buy it. My Bonnie buys shit, but I buy the good coffee. <laughs> well, it goes to like, Tarantino thinks he's, he's a black man from the 70s. <laughs> it's just funny. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he's so soft spoken. Yeah. And he used to work in a video store, too. And I don't think yeah. Tarantino was the guy that owned his high school, either. You yeah, know what right. I mean? Yeah, like, I think he's always not. living out this fantasy, like you said. He, he wants well, more so in right. You know what's interesting? Right. I, was, I was reading about Quentin Tarantino, and I couldn't help but really relate to this. Um, having done theater, you know, after my childhood, and just being a dancer, just my relationship with music because of that. And I, one of the things I love the most about this movie is the soundtrack, the music. It was so well executed, which... You know, the listeners know how important I feel music is to films. Mm -hmm. But um, I read somewhere that Quentin Tarantino, what he does before he writes, he, he'll listen to music or he'll hear songs and he'll create these scenes in his head based on the mood and the feel and what's portrayed in the song. And that really spoke to me because I do the same thing. I mean, when I listen to music, I imagine these scenes or these stories about what the song would be about or even... As a dancer, I imagine like dancing to the music, like how the dance would be and the story I would tell from dancing. And so I really think that that's neat. And so kind of tying into what you said about him being in his own imaginary world, I, that, I really think that that's true. You know, I think he would be fascinated with these movies and these characters and hear the music and just think, okay, what kind of story can I tell? What world can I create with this? I think the one issue, I, it's not even an issue. I think it's just something that I kind of respond to in film is that everybody in this universe is cool. There, yeah. there, there isn't anybody with a lot of vulnerability. Like, everybody's cool. Even the victims are cool. Like, yeah. and, I, and, and it's kind of like, I would like to see a nerd here somewhere. Or, not a nerd, but just somebody who's vulnerable, not necessarily sure of himself, because yeah. everybody here... Well, what's his name? Like, the drug dealer. He's kind of a good one. He was, like, real high. He was very uh, high-strung. Yeah, and nervous. Eric and, and his wife, yeah. And his wife, Trisha Arquette. I would say they were probably. Or even they the guys really at the beginning, cool. they were. I think they were pretty much the definition of lame, actually. Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, they, they were lame, but they were not like. I guess the, if you compare it to something like the Coen Brothers, the Coen Brothers, their characters are very like everyman. Like mm -hmm. they're people you would meet on the street, and they get caught up in these like Fargo, these weird idiosyncratic situations. It's not really fair to compare that to Tarantino, but I think the thing that. With, with me when I was watching is like everybody here is so cool and everybody has such fluid dialogue mm -hmm. there's not one person here that's that says uh or ah uh, or is sort of awkward because I think it's the way Tarantino writes it is a fantasy world yeah, yeah. because there isn't a lot of variance and, outside and of and I think the whole theme of that movie was cool mm -hmm. it was cool it was be, you know be cool I mean think about it he even says in the beginning be cool baby <laughs> yeah. you know like I think that was what the vibe he was wanting and that's why it has some sort of a vintage you know, eclectic feel about it. Even the music, even that the he music, chose. exactly, yeah, and, and the marketing cool for music. it, everything for it was almost like a comic book come to life. Even the first mm -hmm. scene, kind of. you know, initially with the guy sitting in the the booth, you know, with yeah. his foot up and leaning back, and then just all right, let's rob this place. You know, that's all very, yeah. very cool, very casual and cool, yeah. like laid back, as if this kind of stuff happens every, every day. day. Yeah, and you just, just decide to rob a it. diner. Yeah, yeah, I, that's definitely true, and it's totally consistent that way too. Because I think if you threw 
Like, anybody that's less than cool in this universe is going to come off as Jar Jar Binks. And you know what? I, I, I know exactly who. Fabia and Bruce Willis's girlfriend. Can't stand her. She's my least favorite character, but she is the Jar Jar Binks of this movie. <laughs> she really is. For sure. She's not cool at all. She's annoying. She, it is weird. And it's weird because... She wants a pot belly yeah. and blueberry pancakes. She references Madonna's Lucky Star, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. everybody here is very pop cultural. And she's, yeah, yeah and she's wearing, like, a jean jacket. Like, everybody else looks so slick and cool, and they're black and white. Oh, you notice man. that? Almost all the, like, really um, important characters were black and white. Mm-hmm. Mia, um, And then Jules the motorcycle. Day, yeah. She was upset about the motorcycle. She's like, where'd the car go? Yeah, you know, it's like, like, get like, in the come motorcycle. Come on, it's a motorcycle. I just got a motorcycle. Like, what do you want the car for? It, it does kind of drag the film a little bit during yeah. that sequence because it's totally, it's not really, it's t- still totally consistent. They're still talking the way everybody else in the film talked about. But you're right. I think you're getting onto it. That's probably the character that I was saying. There's nobody like that, but there is that, and that she's probably the least interesting character in the movie. You almost yeah. I, until she mentioned it, I completely forgot about her. To be honest, exactly. yeah. I mean, I just she's not memorable. Uh-uh. And you can ha- you don't really need you her. You could not have her. You can have you yeah. can have Bruce Willis come back. That entire scene, yeah, yeah it just you doesn't have need Butch, to happen. What's the name, Butch? Yeah, you can have him come back to his hotel room and not find his watch and go back and kill exactly. Vince Vega. Yeah, and it's repetitive because we just had a scene where he's in a taxi cab with the one. Cabbie, who's really who's, cool. Like, yeah, yeah, like, like, what does she say? Like, uh, what does it like to kill a man? And yeah. he's like going, like, and that's all you really needed. And maybe yeah. he stopped in his apartment, but there probably needed to be the catalyst to of get for him to getting the yeah. watch. Yeah, and that's what it was. Yeah. Well, we didn't need the thirty minutes of whatever it was to catalyze. I, I think they could have been a lot quicker. <laughs> there is one scene in the movie where they're just taking a shower and talking, and then yeah. they got out of it. Like, yeah. wait, wait, really? That that every scene seemed to have a payoff in some. Violent way, yeah. and that was the one that did. Well, Tarantino loves his movies. Yeah. I mean, he he loves. I mean, his movies. He's a director's director. This movie's yeah. actually short compared to a Tarantino movie. It's only yeah. two right. and a half hours long. It yeah. feels long. I, I, well, it doesn't feel I long. Feel long because of her. Yeah, that, that scene drags. But yeah. aside from that, it really moves quickly, and I think part of that is because it, it's like um, it's like a soap opera in the sense that. You have all these different intricate characters, and we're seeing just little snippets mm-hmm. of what's going on with them, and then we'll go back to them, and then we'll, you know, turn the page and go to someone else, and that really keeps you interested, you know, mm-hmm. like what's going to happen next, mm-hmm. um, and I think it helps the time, you know, mm-hmm. go by faster. You're not realizing oh, that you're oh, sitting. Okay, Sabrina. For two. Stop it. Oh, that's my cat, Sabrina. Everyone. Yes, yes, Sabrina. Someone, <laughs> special guest. Yeah. She normally doesn't <laughs> like down. people, but she she doesn't like Fabian, so. Yeah. Uh. Sorry about that, Sean. You okay? That's quite all right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really out take. of her character. I don't know why she did that. <laughs> I was watching her. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah, each episode seems to have like a, uh, um, there's an unexpected event that happens mm-hmm. that throws them completely off guard. Like the, with the, the Mia Vincent date, it's the overdose. That's my favorite yeah. scene of all. I love that scene. Oh yeah, I love Jack Rabbit. Yeah. Slim is. I wish that existed. Of all the I things in this movie, that's when I would wish. We had our own version around. of Jack Rabbit <laughs> before the podcast. That's right. We that had was milkshakes. a tasty burger. No, yeah. I made burgers and homemade milkshakes. 
milkshake. That's an example of the dialogue too. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. this is a five dollar milkshake. That's a damn good milkshake. I don't know if it's worth five dollars. It's damn good. The, the key to that is I don't know if it's worth five dollars. Like right. I just love that's how somebody would have a conversation. Absolutely. And it's funny because it's on the menu as a five dollar milkshake. Yeah. That's how she orders it on the five dollar milkshake, which makes me laugh. It's like, does that mean that there's other price milkshakes on the yeah, menu? Right? That's like that's the one yeah, special stop. one that's yeah. five dollars. Give me the two fifty milkshake. Yeah. See, my, my favorite scene was always you know involving the gimp how he, he walks oh, upstairs God. and he, he slowly starts picking up the things in this pawn shop and you know yeah. he goes from uh, I think it was hammer to baseball bat to that's to chainsaw picks that up, yeah, not the gimp. well no but that's what yeah. I'm saying like when oh, he when he knocks yeah. him out and he goes upstairs and there's all this oh I feel bad for the gimp when he gets knocked out and he's just hanging there <laughs> yeah, he's just he's hanging out. it's just I, so it's, it's, it's I always just hilarious you know where you're sitting there and you're, strike, you're realizing like all that he's picking up is all like situations that Tarantino probably thought of he's like all right let me let me go have him grab you know a hammer like no, me, and then he's like a, better you had a baseball bat ooh maybe a chainsaw and then it finally decides on let's have him pull out the katana yeah <laughs> i love that too yeah like he goes through each one and then he sees that like personally personally the chainsaw would have been it for me but i mean hey man go for the katana you know i don't it's, know it's easy to lose control of a chainsaw yeah you know seriously one one wrong thing and you could cut your own arm off yeah right. <laughs> Well, the blade is more cinematic anyway, exactly. so yeah. it's more That's dramatic. the main reason. Absolutely. Yeah. But I always wondered, speaking of the gimp, if he, if he um, hung to death with Hank. Seriously, I <laughs> well, wonder. he just got knocked he out because he's a boxer. There. You know? yeah. yeah, but wasn't yeah. he hanging off like that rope? Yeah, but he wasn't hanging like, like he was hanging I'm like, pretty sure it was like yeah. on his yeah, yeah, back. back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The gimp, I wonder whatever I happened to him. Like, you know, did the cops ever find out about this whole thing? Because, you know, katanas don't make a whole lot of noise. Well, I'm pretty sure Marcellus Wallace killed everybody up in there. Well, that's what I'm saying, you know. Did the pawn shop just kind of get left to rot? You know, did they finally say, oh, okay, like someone walked in and found this man in a leather suit hanging from the basement? Like, you know. Yeah, I was wondering that too. <laughs> yeah. Look, the, the Gib lost his life several years prior to that event. <laughs> he, he was lifeless. He, he had and, to uh, have been dead. We're talking about, I felt that was so dehumanizing when the Gib got hit. I'm like, it was dehumanizing when the Gib became a Gimp. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. Did he go into it willingly? I mean, was he willingly a slave? Yeah, was he, or was he, he one of the people that, question. like, what happened? You know, did they just kind yeah. of him and you know I'm sure there are several I fans I kind of get the sense because that's what yeah. they did with Marcel right. Wallace I mean, and Bruce Willis in, like, like, in a cage which yeah sure that might be like what he's into now but I'm, I'm sure originally some of that had to have been forced I guarantee yeah. you there's a lot of gimp fan fiction out there that oh, you probably I'm, I'm sure <laughs> and probably not on sites that you normally would yeah, yeah, yeah. might want to have yeah. to turn safe search off for that they exactly. him out. just to find it <laughs> exactly <laughs> they literally brought him out for security I mean they didn't bring him out for any just, yeah they had him guarded yeah, yeah. Just, just to watch Bruce Willis and Bruce Willis know, his, easily got out of those his hands. muffled <laughs> screams would totally help I mean and, and, oh. so really unsettling is when they bring the gimp out first and the cop puts his hand on his head and starts like tapping his head oh yeah with the leather it's just like Oh, yeah, it's like that. he's been trained like yeah. into a house pet. It's just, yeah. Yeah, that whole it is. that it's whole like situation is a beast uh, or a barbarian or something. And he does the eeny meeny miny well for a long period of time. Yeah, that, it's a creepy scene, and, and yeah. their accents are straight out of Deliverance. So you could tell that that's yeah. that's the influence there because it's like, why don't you go get him? You know, like uh-huh. that. Yeah. That kind of thing. But yeah, I don't think he was a cop. That was just his fetish, right? I think it was a fetish too. Yeah, I don't really yeah. get the sure. sense that he was an actual cop. I think he was pretending to be a guard or something. Maybe I, I don't. Know. I thought you. I always thought he was an actual cop. Really? Yeah. I. I thought it was more. I've kind of been fifty-fifty on it. I thought costume thing, like a play-up dress-up thing, maybe you know. There's probably a lot of uh, cop fan fiction exactly, out there that'll yeah. explain the backstory on what's <laughs> going on. And again, not on sites yeah. you probably want to frequent too often. We have to ask Quentin: Is he a cop? Is he an actual cop, or he just come in dressed? I mean, up? these would be questions you would want to ask. Because think about it: this him. guy is a, is a, is a serial sex offender. 
Um, and he's obviously got a fetish. He has a gimp. What does that tell you? He's into <laughs> he that whole like, slave and master thing. Oh, well, so, that's a noun now. We, right. He has a gimp. <laughs> has a gimp. <laughs> well, I thought he was a cop that has a fetish as opposed to part of his fetish is dress up like a cop and do yeah. this. I thought he was like a cop who has this lurid side to him, which would make sense. Like, Either or. The cop would not have an earring, though. He had an earring. That is, he just, yeah. he just didn't yeah. seem like a cop. His body. Yeah. Maybe even, he would take it out and then go yeah. to work. I don't he know. He might have even, been a cop. Yeah. Like I don't know. Because even that uniform didn't even look like a real cop. <laughs> it just looked like a costume, really and truly. Well, I can see that there's a lot of a lot of things that would make you not think he was an actual cop. I mean, which makes me even question even more. Like, how does this guy know him? Like, the guy who owns the pawn shop. Like, how do you become friends in a situation yeah. like that? Like, oh, yeah, man, me and him, we go way back. We have a guy locked up in the basement of our pawn shop in a tight leather suit. It's awesome. Like, how, what do you become bar buddies well, like that? Well, it was that? obviously, like, it was very, you know, it was pre-planned, premeditated. Yeah, but I mean, what sparks that, that kind of friendship? Who even? knows? <laughs> they might have been related. But what did that guy do? It was the only thing, uh, it was only the cop guy yeah. that was doing the stuff. The other guy was just like, Allowing them to do it, but yeah, like having the place, having the gimp, and having kept her. I think they were related to some capacity because if it was filmed in California, so they're in Los Angeles or wherever outskirts, and these two both had extremely heavy southern, <laughs> southern accents, accents, they have to know each other. Yeah, you're right. I think I about mean, it, it's... you know. And the fact that they're doing these deeds together, I mean, I think there's That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, that's a very weird me. situation to be in with someone else entirely. Like, you know, yeah. it's weird enough on your own, but it's even weirder when you have a friend that's like, oh, yeah, man, I'm totally cool with you doing that. Like, yeah, I know. There it, are it, certain things friend are supposed to keep you from doing, and I'm pretty sure that's one of them, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, friends it's. Friends don't let friends get raped. <laughs> friends don't let friends have gimps. There yeah. you go. I, I do love the moment, though, where Bruce Willis saves him. Like yeah, Marcellus Wallace, too. because prior to that, he was running him over with a car <laughs> and shooting at him. And this is the, again, it's the world these guys live in. It's constantly violent. You're yeah. constantly uh, weary of everybody else. It's the only but, circumstance where he would redeem himself in Marcellus Wallace's yeah. eyes is to save him from being raped <laughs> by. It was a little uh, late. Yeah, because oh, yeah. he could have totally left. Just totally left, walked yeah. out of that pawn shop and kept going. He came back and he killed and him and yeah. the other guy picks up the... But it's also interesting because Marcellus Wallace, like we said, is the center of this universe. Mm-hmm. He's this all-powerful, probably mm-hmm. the most powerful person that we see in the movie. Yeah. Yet he's relegated to a sex slave just because of how he crosses in and how the circumstances. It's yeah. just amazing how you go from like high status yeah. to very low status yeah. like, almost immediately. But it's of circumstance. Yeah, exactly. In a pawn shop. Yeah, and, and then they find out who he is very quickly when he's freed. And, you know, and, and actually, those are the guys, like, everybody in this movie technically is deplorable. They aren't people that you would say, these are morally sound people. No, They're no, all no. very yeah. self-serving. Uh, they're Except scary. for Christopher Walken. Yes, he's about yeah. the, only, the only one. I hit this uncanny hole right. in the middle. Yeah. I even think the wolf, for some reason, there's some yeah, element like, of yeah. decency really, there, yeah. you know. But um, I think for him, it's just a job. It's just like, a job. You really do, yeah. 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 He kind of I, he gets separates what he does from like How who he, he is. is. Yeah. Right. But um, but the, it, there are moments where people have that, like Bruce Willis. Like there was no reason for him to save Marcellus. In mm-hmm. fact, that's person he fears more than anybody else yeah. in the world at that point but yet he can't stand the fact that these guys because the guys yeah. in the back that we've been talking about are probably the most deplorable characters because there's it's just a complete yeah. lack of any there's no reason for it to happen no. they just do it out of pure That's their lifestyle. Yeah. yeah you know everybody else it's money or, or there was their job to kill right. people they or like got involved with it yeah. yeah 
And I think that's why as an audience we we get behind Bruce Willis doing what he does and freeing ourselves. Oh, while totally. Us. Probably not a guy that's deserving of I that kind of. I think everybody when he grabbed that that like samurai sword, uh, he was like, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you just knew what was going to happen. I don't happen. know, man. I was like I said, I was cheering when the chainsaw came out. I was like, oh yeah, this is it. He's going back to the you know grindhouse style. And then you know, of course, the katana. I'm not I'm not saying it was a bad substitute, but I really would have loved to seen some of that grindhouse I chainsaw. Don't know, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know. really do. Those characters are put there for you to hate. You know, like it. You you have to. I mean, but Quentin Tarantino yeah. has a certain style, and I respect it about him. Even in other films like Inglorious Bastard, which are more violent than uh, Pulp Fiction for sure, but he still has a very tasteful way of, of um, exploring that violence and showing that violence. And I really respect that. I feel like he's a little. He's very classy in that sense. Where a chainsaw would just turn into Texas Chainsaw Massacre, blood everywhere, body parts everywhere. It would lose that coolness and that that style that Tarantino so you know much values. And I think the sword was obviously the right, right choice the in more, that. Uh, clean um, option. Exactly, and um, I really like that about him is that the movies aren't his movies were never. They're really violent elements and really terrible elements, but even then, it's either classy. done in a humorous yeah. way or like a somewhat classy way or a way that kind of keeps you wanting more, mm -hmm. you know, even if you hate that character. Cinematic serial killer. Well, even it's, in, not, it's not like a gory horror movie. No, even in Kill Bill yeah. Volume 1, which is probably the most violent movie he's made, yeah. that's such a stylized <laughs> violence, but mm -hmm. it's almost like an action violence. Yeah. Even when it gets gratuitous mm -hmm. or if it gets graphic, it's still done in, in, in kind of a fun way. And I think that's the difference between Tarantino and people that just glorify violence on, exactly. on screen. It's like Tarantino, especially in Pulp Fiction, the violence is spontaneous. He doesn't dwell yeah. on it. It moves right to another point. Or mm -hmm. like when, uh, when Vincent Vega shoots the guy's... Head in the back of the car. Yeah, they just it's, keep it's talking. Shocking. They go, oh, yeah. God damn it! What happened? We have to yeah. clean all this up. Yeah. You know, that's, it's there's always a levity and right after. What was yeah. Marvin? They must have liked Marvin. I think Marvin, I think Marvin I think he was sold an them man. out. Yeah, yeah, that's I what I was saying. Oh. I think the whole thing was that Marvin was like, "Hey, these are the guys that did it." And then you know that's why they're like, "Why didn't you tell us there was someone in the bathroom?" Yeah, because he, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're right. That there is. Looks that entire scene. You know, I I still have no idea how you can shoot an outline around somebody standing you know three feet from them. Divine intervention. Yeah, divine yeah. intervention. I want you to recognize <laughs> what this just happened. Weapon. I mean, that thing was massive. <laughs> I love that conversation in, in, the, in the diner between Jules and Vincent. After all, that takes place when he's having this yeah. kind of this uh, spiritual of awakening. Yeah. yeah, the moment of clarity. Because it is two friends that have known each other for a long time. That's how they talk when those things are yeah. going on. In the same boat. You know, they, they do the same thing. That's why, actually, you know, I've been in a very, very similar situation. Uh, my good buddy of mine lives in the southeast Roanoke, which is a really, you know, shaken up part of town. And uh, there was a shooting, actually, outside, like, two houses down from his house. And I was in his house at the time. And uh, I immediately, you know, I ran to the door barricaded, grabbed the knife off the floor, and I was ready to go, and he was upstairs. And uh, once we heard the police sirens roll by, and, you know, everyone was kind of, you know, settled down and whatnot, and it, it was done, it was over, you know, the cops exchanged gunfire, and then it stopped. Everyone walked outside, you know, I walked upstairs, and I... I talked to him like, man, did you see any of that? Like, you know, just went right back into it. And that's yeah. honestly, that's how two best friends are in any situation like that. Yeah. You know, I've, I've personally lived through that. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I, it was terrifying. But uh, my first words to him wasn't, you know, are you okay? Man, did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you wanted to get it off yeah. your chest. That's your way of kind of processing, I think, is <laughs> yeah. to go into that. That's I think that's also, too, uh, a, a very, uh, it, I think it's a gender 
equality too. I feel like women are more like, oh my god, are you okay? Like, how are you? You know, men are just more like, Man, Whoa, what just, what just happened? happened? Yeah. yeah, I think that's just a common. I could have died. Yeah, yeah exactly. Did you see that? We could have been dead right now. And that's why that was there was such conflict. I think in that part when Jules was. You know, wanting him to recognize the divine intervention, he was acting. I don't want to say like a woman, but it was more of an emotional reaction to what happened. And Travolta was kind of blowing it off. But we, like, we even had that yeah. moment actually in the car. You know, Wes was going on and on about like how his parents wanted to kick him out. Like he was supposed to be moved out of there like weeks ago. And you know, here there's shootings happening. Where like, I mean, you would have walked 20 feet over and it would have been right in front of his house. And like, God knows if that guy would have darted and ran, he very well could have darted and ran into the house. Like, you, you don't yeah. know that kind of stuff. Yeah, you don't. And uh, he was having a whole big, deep moment about it. And, you know, it, it's like you said, that moment of clarity. And I was like, man, you're thinking too much about this. I was, you know, yeah. I was I was vague over there. I'm like, you're thinking too much. You're thinking too much, mm-hmm. you know. Until it, it happens to you. And then yeah. you do. I, I think one of the moments I love in that sequence, too, and something that dawned on me when I'm watching it is, Jules is trying to give up the life, as he calls it. Yeah. And when he has Tim Roth at gunpoint after they've attempted to rob him and he's keeping him at bay, his first good deed, and I love this, is to allow this guy to rob the place. Yeah, he, yeah. he just wants his own wallet. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah but he exactly. takes his wallet. He's like, right. But he gave him all this. the money. He yeah. gave him all the money out of his wallet. It was like a, over a thousand dollars. Did he tell him to return all the other wallets? I don't know. No, remember. I think he took, he said, no, he says, there's a line where he says, with this and the, and the, and the cash in the drawer. You should have enough. Yeah. You should have enough. That's a good score. He just yeah. wasn't going to give him the briefcase. But he allowed him to rob yeah, everybody he else. He just, he's not like um, saying, give everybody else here back their money. Yeah. He, yeah. he allowed them I to I love that it. one. Wait, what's your wallet? The one that says bad, bad motherfucker. motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes out. I love how much him. that wallet has sold, too. Because I see one yeah. at least. Like, every time I go to a large store or something, there will be someone in line ahead of me. And if they're anywhere between, like, the age of, like, 15 and 25, Half the time, they pull out that wallet. Like, I have friends that have that wallet. Yeah. It's it's become ridiculously iconic. Well, that's just just another testament to how this film is really, truly a cultural icon. And even now, I mean, people still love that movie and talk about it. When I went to Portland, there was a a big Kahuna Burger little side shop. Actually, we were on some river. It wasn't actually Portland. It was some, like, river town in... uh, Oregon that we went to and this was right before we went to Washington State but on like their little board, boardwalk they had this massive hotel and then next to it they had like a bunch of little tiny mom and pop shops and one of them was called Big Kahuna Burger and their, their thing said mm, that's a tasty burger yeah. and that that's just funny. that made it for me mm-hmm. you know that's all the way out on the west coast you know which yeah, isn't sure that far from where it happened but you know yeah. I see it on the east coast here and then I go out on the west coast and sure enough I see well, it there too. Well I think too. the more important thing is is that you're seeing it Today. At all, yeah. Like now, that too, I mean, you know, this, this was this ago. was this yeah. summer, and I saw a big Kahuna Burger, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, that's one of the scenes I love watching uh, Jules yeah. say, "This is a tasty burger." Because my um, my girlfriend's a vegetarian, so that pretty much makes me a vegetarian myself. Yeah. But yeah. I do love a good yeah, burger. Just getting ready to shoot these guys, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love the, just the way they, they set everything up. And then when he takes the bite out of the burger, and when he's when he takes the was it, the Coke, yeah, yeah, the Sprite. Can I? Wash this down with a tasty beverage. He's staring at the guy, but it's not even a mean look. It's just like he just keeps staring at him with this yeah. like lighthearted look. But it's it's still intimidation. It's still saying yes. I'm in control of the situation now. Well, he's, he's eating like, his food. He's got. He, yeah. He's like I'm gonna milk this up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the guy knew he was coming to kill him. He was he walking knows. in his house. He was eating yeah. his food that he bought for himself. It was like complete, you know, overtake overtake yeah. of the situation. Now I have a question though. Logically, why didn't they just kill them? Why did they have to build it up at all? They knew they were then we wouldn't <laughs> have a memory. And and again, Quentin Tarantino's whole, I think, motivation for this movie was to have a cool, 
I don't want to say gangster because they're not gangsters, but like a cool, you know, mm-hmm. not, for lack of a better word, gangster movie. I think you they were know, also kind of putting a point out there to Marvin, honestly, you know, because they did intend to keep him alive. Sure, that didn't end up happening. They would have done that whether or not Marvin was in the room. I yeah. believe that that yeah. was how they did things. Because right. he always had the Bible quote. It was very Ezekiel, classy, Ezekiel, right? whatever, 720 or whatever it was that he always reads. They had a process. Yeah, it was an example before well, it happened. Even you know, before. setting that, that stage of this is where you went wrong. Well no, well, no, I think it was more or less, it was a job to them. Like before they even went into the building or in the hallway and Jules says, let's get into character. It was a job for them. That's how they did things. I think, and he even says in the restaurant when he quotes the yeah. Ezekiel quote again, he goes, now if you heard that quote from me, I was, I'm about ready to pop a cat, cap in your ass. Like that was his process. That's yeah. how he did things. Well, the movie is, and, and we were talking about it earlier, and I pointed that logically, and it is that the movie is a stylized fantasy. It's every yeah. much, bit of much a fantasy of Star Wars or Snow White. Yeah. There's some reality there. It's gritty, and there's, some for similitude, but mm-hmm. it is essentially he's taking uh, elements from different strands of pop culture, like yeah. you know the, the kind of the countercultural, like more sordid elements, like noir and and you know graphic novels and things of that nature, and he's bringing them together in his own unique fantasy, and that's what makes it such a compelling thing. Mm-hmm. But it's done so well, and it's so yeah. well crafted, you know, like going back to the. Uh, comment I made earlier where the critics were saying it would be great if Tarantino would apply these these talents to something a little more serious. like you know artistic or serious or more high minded and I'm like well it wouldn't be Tarantino we wouldn't have these movies and the fact that we're still talking about Tarantino he's become a brand now yeah, yeah. Tarantino is a distinct brand yeah which a is, movie yeah right and that's that shows that he has a unique artistic personality that when other people attempted to rip him off, when they were trying mm-hmm. to do things that Tarantino would do, it was watered down because Tarantino has a certain flair. Yeah. It comes from him. He's going to put his own personal, like you'll see clips of movies throughout yeah. Pulp Fiction on television and stuff, and they were probably personal favorites of mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, yeah. things that he grew up with. Yeah. And that's the personal touch that makes this movie so compelling, I think, and the dialogue. And I the mean, detail. It's so detailed. Down from Jackrabbit Slims, you know, to. Um, the body, the house, and the body situation. Everything is just so detailed. You may you may not notice it, but I really appreciate that about it. You know, everything has its purpose and its place, and even, it yeah. create helps create that world and make it even that much more realistic. Even the Jackrabbit Swim's menu, it's like, yeah. Would you like that burger crisp or bloody as hell? And it's yeah. right. Steve Buscemi playing Buddy exactly. Holly, which and is then, <laughs> yeah, very deadpan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then when she ordered the the milkshake, it was like doing it Martin and Lewis or something and Cynthia, yeah. or, and it, it just it made you feel like that was a real restaurant. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like I want to go there. It was very detailed. It was, and then the dancing contest yeah. and um, With Ed Sullivan. Yeah, who's also, ho- <laughs> also the who's also the host and. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. and, it, and it's it, you casually go through the restaurant without mm-hmm. drawing too much attention to any of these characters. Absolutely. He's just giving you a flavor of this place. But the detail, like you said, is so well crafted. Mm-hmm. There's so much to soak in. That's why it works. And so the repeated. music too. The song they play when they first go into the restaurant. It's just like that electric chord yeah. song from the '50s. Just sets the whole tone. And they even actually do. I'm not. I don't know what the technical term is for it in terms of like um, cinematography, but. They do almost like a point of view, whereas if you're Vincent Vega walking all the way across the restaurant to your car table, because he looks at all the different tables, and you can see it's it's like a, you know, as if you're exploring that restaurant for the first time with him. Mm-hmm. And I always really loved it, and I think that's why that's my favorite scene, um, not just for those sort of like uh, 
uh, cinematic qualities because I'm very I love the fifties and yeah. I like that. But I also love the chemistry that he and Uma Thurman had and their characters. Mm. I, was I love that both too. of the characters and the conversation they have at the table and the kind of flirting and um, then the dance contest. And I just think it's a, it's a really awesome scene. And I think it's very funny to see yeah. Vincent dragged so far out of his comfort zone. Yeah, to, to a to place like there. that. You know, this man that's so well composed and you know just. But he's on he edge. About, he's on edge the whole time well, yeah, because he's nervous. Saying. He makes and, the wrong and on move. Top of that, Marcellus he's in will a kill place, him. He's on a place where he's dancing and, you know, eating in a car where he was talking about his trip and he was talking about the burgers and fast food restaurants. Like, you know, clearly he's not that type of person. He doesn't take girls out to dinner to places like that. And yeah. it, was just, it was cool seeing that, too, you know, how he would react in such a setting, yeah. being his character. Well, I think what's really fascinating about their relationship, too, is th- there's a lot of tragedy to this relationship because mm-hmm. these are two that are people that are clearly soulmates they speak the same language they relate to each other like in a way that people that are meant to be together would and they recognize it and they recognize it but they can't be together because Mm -hmm. of marcellus wallace who again hovers over everybody Mm -hmm. like this stark lord it's just that other element of control that marcellus wallace has on this world Mm -hmm. yes and all the people in it yeah, and uh, it, it's a tragic. And what's interesting about Mia, too, is that she's set up to be a trophy wife. The whole time it's like Mia, mm-hmm. she was an actress, yeah. she's a trophy wife. But when you meet her, she's a very fascinating, multifaceted yeah. person. Right. Very cool, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Very like, independent, yeah. yeah. Very, like, laid back, mm-hmm. you know. Well, um, she doesn't come off as a trophy wife at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, she's attractive, but she's not, like, trophy wife attractive, you know. She's she's quirky, yeah, and I quirky like it about and, her. She has her kind of her own sense of style and... Um, I think it's interesting when we first meet her when um, Vincent Vega comes into the house and she's like watching him on the that the house camera and then speaks to him on the intercom. It just kind of sets the tone for I don't know, like it builds up that um, uh, kind of anxiety a little bit that that we know Vincent Vega is already feeling. And even she's even kind of like I don't know this guy. I don't want to go out to dinner with him. Like this is awkward and weird. Um, and I just think it's neat. It also shows again that power play mm-hmm. that Marcellus Wallace has on, you know, all these different characters. And Vincent's such a professional, too. Like, he does not want to disrupt this. Like you said, he's very calm. Like, he's used to having things, you know, kind of arranged, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And he's even talking to himself in the mirror, like, you're going to go home? (laughs) Yes, you're going to jack off and forget about this whole thing. (laughs) That's exactly what he said. Uh, So. Don't be rude. Have a drink. (laughs) And then then go home. I mean, I don't know how most guys are, but, you know, I've had that conversation with myself, too, in certain situations. I feel like most men really have. You know, you've been in that situation where you're like, I I can take this a completely different way, but I can't. You know, I have to be respectful going about it, you know. Yeah, that's true. There, there is that. Like, there was, that was such a relatable uh, scene, you yeah. know, coming from manhood that you're just like, I, I completely understand, man. I felt so bad for him in that scene. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, you, know, you know what it's like yeah, to have yeah, to tell yourself you're, that. You're conflicted. He's very conflicted, obviously, for obvious reasons. Yeah. And, and uh, but then the od- overdose happens. Like she ODs. He has yeah. to take her over there. And like it, everything just went <laughs> spirals out of control. Did you, did you know that uh, there's a rumor, and Quentin Tarantino said it's not true, but the person, the character that uh, Eric Stoltz plays was originally supposed to be Kurt Cobain, and then his wife was going to be Courtney Love. Oh wow! I wow. Like Quentin okay. Tarantino says he's never talked to Kurt Cobain about it, but you could definitely see. You can see that really. Yeah, I can see how people get that because he definitely dresses like. What you would think? Oh, clearly yeah. that guy had a Cobain vibe. Yeah, I think about it, and, and she definitely had a Courtney love. It's um, very, yeah. it's very true. But going back to what you had said about, um, you know, the bathroom scene with Vincent Vega, that's just another example of how real this movie is and how it connects with people on a very real and um, at the same time kind of like casual level. 
you know, where you feel like these characters, you could be one of them, or, or you might know someone like that, or you kind of feel like you're in that world already. Um, even though it's this eccentric, cool world that may not ever really exist, you know, um, it, it kind of, th those certain moments that kind of bring you back down to, mm -hmm. bring you back down to earth. But at the same time, then, she's overdosing in the next room, so we're, it's like we're on a roller coaster ride. The whole movie's kind of like a roller right. coaster ride from one trauma to the next, you know, and what's going to happen here. And I think that really added to that whole experience of her overdosing, too, the fact that, you know, the next room over, he's sitting there saying, you know, all right, exactly. it's going to be a calm night, I'm going to go yeah. home, it's going to be fine, and she's you know, sniffing horror heroin out of his, you know, coat pockets, mm -hmm. you know, it's just such a... Which he got from that contract. drug dealer. Right. And he's going back to the yeah. dealer, and... I mean, that adrenaline shot, I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my, my heart God. was yeah. racing. Yeah. I was, that I felt like was I was... so in, long. Well, I felt like I was in that room with them, you know, I felt like I was one of the characters. I was so nervous about, oh my God, is she going to live? Because if she doesn't live, he's going to die. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Or what's, yeah. Vincent's uh, dead, Marcellus man. Wallace will kill him, you know? I love like, how he just crashes the car into the side of the house, <laughs> too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Really added to it. <laughs> Like, oh my God, oh my God, just crashes the car. Doesn't yeah. even worry about it. You know, being the type of person Vincent is too, you know? No, yeah. car was probably his but, baby. But I think the cool thing about it is um, that we as audience members become as fearful as Marcellus Wallace as the characters in the film. Like the scene with Bruce Willis. Most people, I'm pretty sure, are rooting for Bruce Willis. I hope he gets away from yeah. Marcellus Wallace. They don't want Marcellus Wallace to win. Not that they have any thing against him because we don't really know him but what we know what we of know him, him we're right. scared of him and we know he's dangerous and we know he'll kill us and so everybody's and that's what again makes that ending scene where Bruce Willis saves Marcellus Wallace I think um kind of really a, a memorable talked about scene is because okay now we've gotten to know Marcellus Wallace at this point and we realize he's just like us mm -hmm. yeah it's powerful what's also interesting about that scene that uh, you mentioned is like one of the few instances where we see people that aren't part of the underworld yeah. in the movie because he randomly shoots a soccer mom when he's trying to aim for Bruce yes. Willis. It's like, that ticks you out. Like, oh, yeah. wow, there are people. That there are regular people. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's crazy, though, because she's shot in the hip and she falls down. And yeah. it, to see some like a soccer, like not a soccer mom, just like a regular yeah, middle-class mom being shot randomly so down. Yeah, just trying to help Like, it's just kind of remembering, like, oh, that's right, not everyone's like this, but, you yeah. know, these guys are, you know, that's yeah. normal to them. And yeah, so that's their regular everyday life, and yeah. uh, I, I always liked that motif. But the other thing, too, getting back to the needle, it's funny, the things that shock us the most in this movie has nothing to do with death or, or direct violence. It's either rape or... Yeah. Uh, reviving someone from life because yeah. needles scare the shit out of people. Me too. They yeah. scare me. I don't like that scene where it shows John Travolta shooting up. Oh, I've yeah. had a problem with needles. I've had a problem with stitches more than anything else. But yeah, yeah, I, I, do, yeah. I do somewhat understand that. Like, there are a lot of people I know that they will faint when you pull out a needle. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, You can pull out a knife and they'll be fine, but yeah. the second they see that needle, man, they're just... Well, they show that blood go into the needle and then come out. Yeah. Well, like, you know why, too? Because detail. guns are so fast. I could point a gun, boom, you're gone. You fall mm -hmm. to the floor and then whatever you can hide Needles the door, are, yeah. and guns are more personal yeah. you know it's a much more personal fight or death you you know you see the the cut or whatever the case may be and i think that's maybe why uh at least that's why i kind of am more fearful of stuff well, like Freddie that Freddy Krueger is scarier than exactly like, he scares is. you because he's got those knife hands yeah, you right. know like right. he's not like shooting people with a gun and that's that well it's also a quick efficient scene like mm -hmm. he's rattling off exactly what he has to do to revive her yeah. and it goes into specific details but going yeah, right into the heart <laughs> so you're visualizing the stuff as I described before it happens so when it happens you're like oh that's not and it's, it's just, that thump and it's like boom 
And then it's like she starts screaming. Yeah. And then she's got the needle still stuck in her, and she's just like. I think it also shows you know, like how quick that happened, like how fast she's like trying to yeah. process everything. And he's like, "All right, go," you know. <laughs> One of the things too about the movie that I think is was very unique in its time, and it's happened in other area. It's happened in other mediums and mm-hmm. in other places, but it's the it's the lack of a linear narrative. Like we. Yeah. Go back and forth. Exactly. You know, we'll see people die midway through the film, but yeah. then we'll come back to, to seeing it. And I think it's it's designed, I think, to be like a uh, a pulp novel or yeah. or a magazine. That's why it's right. called that's pulp, why pulp fiction. fiction. That's why I think it's so sad yeah. when Vincent, you know, dies. When, yeah, when, nobody saw that coming. Well, it's because you know, if you think about it, this whole thing. I'm assuming that happened after the whole briefcase and the the robbery and everything and where, you know, Jules was out of it. If he had his partner with yeah, him, Vincent right. wouldn't be dead. And, yeah. you know, Jules left his life and said, you know, this is our, this is your divine intervention. You need to get out now. I'm getting out. And mm-hmm. Vincent, of course, doesn't listen to that message. And then, sure enough, you know, Butch That's exactly down. why Vincent's by himself. I thought that, too. Yeah. Where was Jules in that moment? If you, you listened know? to that whole, right. you know, moment of yeah. divine yeah, intervention, then yeah. he wouldn't. Yeah. That happens to be alive. Yeah, right. At least probably a couple of days after. I think the only story that's actually on par, like on time, is probably the Butch story. The Butch line is probably the one that's actually yeah, that's what like happening. To, I think that happened last. Yeah, too. like that was the final. Yeah, because that was up. The, yeah. yeah. It makes you wonder too. Like, where is Marcellus Wallace after what happens? Exactly. To him? Does he change? Yeah. After right. Like you don't know. Well, you don't well, see any of them ends, So we don't know. Yeah, yeah that's where just... it ends. So we don't know. And that's why Marcellus Wallace. I think. Um, I think if you notice, he had like coffee and donuts. I think he was walking to go back to meet Vincent Vega. Mm-hmm. Right. Because why was he in the middle of the street with coffee and donuts? Otherwise, right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. There's like there's that's the great thing about this movie. Like I think retired. I think the reason that this withstands over time for a lot of people, like when they go back and watch it again, is because there's a lot of mystery surrounding yeah. elements of this movie that we've been discussing. Like what happened to the, the in this yeah. situation? The ultimate one would be the briefcase. Everybody always wonders what's mm-hmm. in that briefcase, and I don't think I want to know. I think it's just a MacGuffin. It's what everybody Absolutely. wants, and that's enough. I don't necessarily yeah. need to explore it anymore. It's more effective not knowing what it is mm-hmm. because it lets your imagination, whatever your interpretation of the most valuable thing in the universe, is what's in that briefcase. I think. And honestly, I, I've watched it a few times. I never remember wanting to, not like wanting or. That briefcase even mattering. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I never got I it. Forgot that, up in that. Like when yeah. she pointed out when we watched it this week, Tony yeah. pointed out to me that we never know what's in the briefcase. Like, oh, I never even knew that there was a that the I forget about the briefcase. And that's because else going we've on. become so attached to characters at yeah. this point that we're in that world. We don't even the briefcase is gone, gone. You know, we're not worried about it anymore. Yeah, I never got caught up in what's in the yeah. briefcase either. It was not that. I it, it, it's it's. Played beautifully, but it's just well, not I something like how when I. I like it opens get... it too. It has that like light kind of come out of it. Yeah, and, like, yeah. and that just adds to it. You know what is it's in, in that briefcase? Yeah, you know, for all you know, it could literally be a flashlight with yeah. you know, like batteries sticking out, you know? <laughs> which is probably is in real life in reality. It's a lightsaber. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the only reason Jules maintains it has nothing to do with the contents. It's no. it's his duty. Like this is yeah. I yeah. owe this, this guy. This is my I'm last good. job. You right. know, yeah. I have to protect this briefcase. Right, mm-hmm. and and that's it. Uh, Jules to me is probably my favorite character in the film. Like, yeah. I, and I think it's the movie that made Samuel L. Jackson. Like, yeah. the reason we know who he is today, to the level that we do, and mm-hmm. as familiar as we are, is because of Pulp Fiction. Uh, and 
I think he's the one that really nails the essence of the movie, like why we're drawn to it. He's the guy, you know, Travolta has, is, is cool and, you know, like mm-hmm. people are He's his dr- counterpart, you know, he's the yin to his yang. Yeah, know? yeah. But I think the substance comes from Jules. Like Jules is mm-hmm. the guy that's kind of the heart of this movie. And I think he's probably the most um, authentic character in the movie too. Even though he's a hitman, um, you know, we see him with this revelation that he's having and this new outlook on life and how he's wanting to change. And I guess, I don't know if it's because he does more of the talking than John Travolta, but there's just something about Jules that um, I feel like most char- most people on, on whole would, would say that he was probably their favorite character. There's just something about him. He's just kind of like the essence. I feel like he carries the film in many ways. Yeah, he and Mia are probably the most outspoken. Me too. Yeah. They're my favorite, yeah. yeah they're, they're the ones Mia's that people... definitely my favorite. Well, her description of the pilot I always liked. Oh, yeah. The, the Fox Force 5. Fox Force 5. <laughs> five a dangerous us. woman in the world. There were five fox because there were five foxy ladies. Five because there's five of us. Yeah, she always explains it. Force because we're forced to be reckoned. So, what's everybody's like overall impression of the film? Like, now that you've seen it several times, at this stage in your life, how do you look at the movie? I'll start with uh, Justin. I always thought like an overall message that you can be taken from the movie. Like, uh, the big one for it could be, uh, you know, in the end where uh, Butch Bruce Willis goes, you know, save. Marcellus Wallace that like you can be a, a relatively shady character you know you can be all about yourself and what you have to do and you know that whole life of crime that they're all involved in but that doesn't really stop you from still you know being having that that essence of of doing a good deed every now and then and I think that was mm-hmm. what was more shocking and like drove in home you know as far as watching the movie like that point really got driven and driven and driven to me like over and over again you know you can be this this relatively shady person but still have an essence of right and wrong and do the right thing on occasion and I think that was really what kind of stuck in that head like stuck in my head from that movie more than anything else was just that you know the people I meet you know my first impression of them might be uh, you're you're not exactly someone I would like to associate with but then you'll see that same person go out and do something that you know you would do or that you know is just a better deed than what you normally perform and it kind of kind of teaches you not really to judge everyone based on how they present themselves as and the lifestyle that they've just grown accustomed to because that's all they really know mm-hmm. but that doesn't fully stop them from still being a good or a bad person yeah and I, I think um, for me the movie has grown on me over repeated listenings like I always liked the movie mm-hmm. and I always recognized that it was a watershed moment in cinema you know yeah. it just changed everything but on a personal level, as far as like me enjoying the movie in a vacuum, it improves each time. I don't know if I would rank it as highly on my own. Like if I had a list of my favorite movies of all time, I don't know if I'd rank Pulp Fiction as close as other people do, where they sure. end up in the top five. Because sure. a lot of people would say yeah. that's their favorite movie. Right. But I definitely enjoy it more and more each time I watch it. Because there's such a specificity to detail, and there are things mm-hmm. that you pick up each time yeah. you watch it. Like if you look at Slack, Slap Rabbit Jim, you know, yeah. like you 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 see different things even in that scene that you didn't notice before, and you appreciate it more and more. Mm-hmm. All the the attention to detail, mm-hmm. uh, and I love the performances. Like I think uh, Uma Thurman, John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Uh, we forgot to mention Christopher Walken, Absolutely. who has a yeah. great yeah. monologue, great cameo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, he's just amazing and everything. Like it, it, it's it's definitely a classic. I think it's a movie that's going to stand the test of time and people are going to rediscover upon each generation. So For me, I, I there are two elements that really make me like the film. I have to agree with Sean in that I really respect the movie and I enjoy watching it. Would it be in my top ten? Maybe not, but that's okay. You know, I still 
really enjoy it. I own it. So the fact that I own it says a lot because I don't really buy movies a lot, but I have this one. But that kind of ties into um, one of the, one of the uh, reasons why I enjoy it so much is in college, my really good friend Craig, who I'm still very good friends with, it was always his favorite movie. And um, so we would quote it a lot in class and, you know, say what again. We'd always do that to each other. And so there's a sentimental value to this film for me. And the other thing is, is that I really love being in that world. I know when I put Pulp Fiction in, I know what I'm getting. Um, and I just enjoy it. I like being caught up in that world. It always makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. So I guess in that respect, Quentin Tarantino and I have a very similar sense of humor. I love the attention to detail. As um, someone who's very detail-oriented, that speaks mm -hmm. to me, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and I just think the performances are fantastic. It's just a gr it's just a fun film to me. It's very fun, and I know what I'm getting, and I like that. It's kind of like eating mac and cheese on a, you know comfort food. It's kind of like yeah. comfort food. You know, it's a good movie to watch on a rainy day <laughs> when you're sick, home from school or home from work, mm -hmm. um, because it'll make you laugh a little bit. It'll make you. It'll surprise you a little bit, and you'll mm -hmm. find something new about it that you never realized. Mm -hmm. Comfort food with butt rape and murders uh, <laughs> 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 and junkies and man junkies and everything. So. Yeah, I, I I personally think I like it a lot. I'm with Sean where the more I watch it, the more I like it. I don't think it's my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. I think Glorious Bastards, Bastards, Bastards <laughs> is my favorite, just because I like the the idea of you know taking uh, a period of time that we're so familiar with the World War II and taking these real life characters and turning it into something completely new. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like the villain uh, Christoph yeah. Waltz plays, um, but. Um, I like Pulp Fiction a lot. I think it does drag a little bit with the Bruce Willis and his girlfriend scenes. Yeah. Um, so that kind of takes it down. But, you know, as far as every scene that, you know, Joel's and Vincent Vega's in, and, uh, you know, I like the, you know, uh, Marcellus Wallace and, and yeah. Butch, you know, that interaction and that story I, I enjoy a lot. And so, you know, overall it's a really good movie. You know, mm -hmm. it's like a, you know, it's definitely like a three, three and a half star movie, but it's not one of my top movies of all time. This is out of four That's stars. About four, four. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little four star star rating. Rating. It's out of three yeah. and a half, but yeah. I, I definitely see it's so unique, and when sure. it came out, it was so, you know, completely different than a lot yeah. of people And I, I also like the retro feel of it, too. Yeah. It right. really has its Even own it style. Yeah. It, it you don't know what time period it is. Absolutely. We were, we were just yeah. discussing that earlier, how, you know, yeah. the way some characters are dressed compared to others. Like, you definitely yeah. can tell, like, yes, it's a 90s movie, but, you know, in the world of Mia Wallace and Vincent Vega, you it's know, it could very well yeah. be like an 80s movie. You know, it's you like don't Batman, really know. 1989 Batman. You don't really know. Yeah. It could be the 40s or the 89s. And I think that, <laughs> yeah. that is really what drags people, especially me, that's really what drags me in is I, I feel like I'm really a part of this this world that I have no idea what decade it is. I have no idea what day it even is. For me, it's you it's know? a lot of the, you know, like you said, the attention to the detail and everything. And on top of that, that theme. Like, I feel like that's really something to draw from the movie is just the fact that, like, this whole lifestyle thing that you're looking into and, you know, realizing, like, yeah, they're not so different after all, yeah. you know, even though these people are, you know, drug dealers, <laughs> hitmen, uh, professional boxer, mm -hmm. you know, two rapists. Like, it's just very odd set of characters and you realize, you know, they're not so different after all. And I think the the thing to take into account is that I, I really don't think Tarantino or anybody involved with the production expected Pulp Fiction to become a pop cultural right. phenomenon. Icon, yeah. yeah. I, it definitely has a it is a cult movie in the sense that it has a very passionate following of fans who just like uh, salivate over every specific detail in the movie. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it has a much broader audience than it was ever intended to have. Right. And I think it was the movie that broke independent cinema. And independent is not necessarily the literal sense where it's indie. It's it's more of a an attitude. It's Absolutely. like it's countercultural. It's not the mainstream, but it was bringing it into but houses. But it's still high value production. Right. Yeah, you're still getting quality movie. There are grandmothers yeah. who have heard of Pulp Fiction. They yeah. probably <laughs> weren't supposed to have heard of this yeah. movie, but yeah, they know. Seen it, it like three times. Yeah. yeah right. So that's the legacy of this movie. It, it's kind yeah. of a unique occurrence in in, in pop culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny because me personally, you know, whenever I hear a friend that hasn't seen it, my first thing is to drag that friend over to my house and make them watch it. Like sit there with them, you know, with the popcorn. Like, yeah, man, did you just see that? You know, yeah. like you yeah. said, a cult following group. It just, really is. It, it yeah. spreads. Oh yeah, I mean, as people know every line of dialogue, and they'll they'll go over Example. every lurid detail. <laughs> I love that. It's like, example. <laughs> Joel tells him in the car when he's talking about uh, Amsterdam. Yeah, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Example. Well, it's a Royale cheese. It is. So it's available on Blu-ray, and it's actually a great Blu-ray. They have a lot of behind-the-scenes documentaries about how they made the film, which is very fascinating by any standard, the casting, you know, the vision of Tarantino, Mm -hmm. and and how revolutionary this was in 94. Uh, So I highly recommend that, like, if you can pick it up. I think it was released in 2011 or so. And uh, that's it. I think uh, we covered as much as we can yeah. with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Be cool, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> and we Be did it in, cool. in Tarantino style. It was not a, you know, we moved from one scene yeah, to the exactly. next, you know, so yeah. that was our tribute. So thanks to everybody for joining us. Thank you, Justin, for yes. joining us. No yes. problem. Have yeah. a good time. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thirty minutes away. I'll be there in ten.